Hey, uh, we're glad you're here. Um, we're in this series that we've talked about called uh, Ask Alexa that, that really focuses on this idea of uh, we have important questions that we have to ask as followers of Jesus, topics, things that we need to know about, but who you ask shapes the answers. If you ask a question, you're going to get a very different answer from a self-help, from a self-help author or uh, from a monk. You're going to get a different answer from Fox News than Oprah. Um, so uh, we've been talking about where we find these answers and who we're going to ask, and uh, we've invited our friend Alexa here. So uh, let's see if we can wake Alexa up. Uh, Alexa, good morning. Good morning. Hey, hey, Alexa, we're talking today about eternity. Alexa, what can you tell me about eternity? Eternity is defined by the Webster Dictionary as infinite or unending time, or a period of time that seems endless, as in, that preacher went on for eternity. Not Uh, you, of course. uh, Thank you. Uh, Alexa, uh, where do people go for eternity? Religions have varying beliefs, but no one knows for sure. Perhaps to a place of constant political advertising without ever having an election. That sounds a lot like hell to me. Um, Alexa, how, how many, actually, how many people are in hell? The population of hell, Michigan, is 266. Okay, um, let's, let's try a different tact. Um, Alexa, how many people are in Hades? The current population of the nation of Haiti, an island in the Caribbean, is currently 11,188,914, 915, 916, 917. Um, okay, let's, uh, instead, let's, let's talk about heaven or paradise. Um, Alexa, how can I get to paradise? Paradise is a small town in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. You can get there from your current location in 4 hours and 42 minutes, if you drive the posted speed limit. If you drive very dangerously, you may arrive there much faster. Uh, Thank you. Um, Alexa, your voice sounds different today. Are you feeling okay? Thank you for asking. I was feeling fine, but I think I might have a virus. Thank you, Alexa. You're welcome, Rick. Will you be speaking for an eternity? Alexa, stop. (laughs) Who you ask shapes the answers that you get, right? Most religions, most cultures have some sense that there is something more to life than what we exist in right now. There's something more than this life that we live currently. If that's true, it's really important that we ask the right questions and that we ask the right questions from the right source because when we find those answers, those answers will determine how we live. We have to understand eternity. Understanding eternity is critical because how we see eternity determines how we see the world. How we see eternity determines how we live our lives. If this is all there is, if when we take our last breath and our bodies are laid in a grave or our bodies are burnt up in a crematorium and that's it, then it makes perfect sense to do everything that we can right now to live a life with as few difficulties and obstacles as possible. It makes sense to eliminate as many irritants as we can from difficult people to difficult environments. It makes sense to do a risk analysis 
on every aspect of our lives. Is this going to make my life better or is it going to make it worse? Because at some level, if this life is all there is, he who dies with the least hardship wins. Maybe that has to do with things. Maybe not. Relationships matter, but they only matter if they're beneficial to me. If relationships are difficult or painful, life's too short, and so I'm simply going to eliminate those difficult relationships from my life. On the other hand, if life is a preparation, if this life is a preparation for an eternal one, that changes everything. Difficult situations or relationships, no matter how bad they are at the present, they're preparation for eternity. How we deal with the obstacles that come up in our lives matters. How we deal with success matters. How we deal with our possessions matters. How we deal with the needs in the world around us matters. What I want us to do today is to see what the Bible says about eternity. If you're not sure about the the whole Jesus thing, if you're not sure that the Bible is authoritative about all things, um, you know what, you're in in an okay place today. That's okay that that's where you are. All I'm asking today is that you listen with an open mind and that you stick with me because when I get down to the end of today's message, I'm going to give you something very concrete to consider regarding whether or not this whole thing is true. So let's start with the opening premise about eternity, and it's this. Eternity is real. Eternity is a concept that's found throughout Scripture. We're going to go to Scripture to see what Scripture says. In the Old Testament, the the word eternal or eternity isn't really used a lot. Instead, it's a concept that's there. That that The words are, are better translated from everlasting to everlasting or forever and ever. The concept of eternity is found in the Old Testament. Psalm 90 says this, Before the mountains were born or before you had given birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are the eternal God, the Amplified Version says. Isaiah 40, verse 28 says, Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. In the New Testament, it's there too. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus and asks him, um, ask him ab- about what, uh, what it means to follow him, Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, everlasting life. Romans 6, as Paul's teaching about the, the change that happens in followers of Jesus, he says, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is talking, Mark records it, uh, records Jesus saying this, No one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. In the New Testament, eternity is a concept that's there over and over again, but don't miss this. Eternity is not endless time. Eternity transcends time. Uh, Take a second and just think about that. We we only know um, 
we only know linear time. We, we know yesterday, we know today, we know tomorrow. We think in that terms, in, in those terms, linear time. Eternity exists outside of linear time. Eternity is the condition that God made us to be in relationship with him in. No beginning, no end. Uh, for us, there's a beginning, but no end. That we're with him in his presence forever and ever. I have a friend who's a, who's a pastor who, who uh, told a story a number of years ago that has just really stuck with me. It, he, he, told, uh, he was a servant in Dallas, and he t- talked about this man in Dallas um, who he and his wife lost two children at very young ages. The, the first was uh, about two years old, and, the, and the, the father of this child just grieved tremendously. They got pregnant and had another baby, and the baby had complications and only lived two days. And um, they talked about the, the church coming alongside this guy, but the, the grief that he sensed, that he felt, was just overwhelming because his baby had died uh, living only two days. And he said, it's not right, it's not fair. Um, the, uh, God, God shouldn't have made this baby to just live two days. And my friend talked about somebody who came alongside him and said, you know what? God didn't create your son to live two days. God created your son for eternity. You only had two days with him. That's the picture. That's the concept that we have. God created us for eternity, not for the 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 years that we live on this earth. God created us for eternity. That's what the Bible teaches, that eternity is real, that that's what we were created for. If that's true, the Bible says that there are only two options in eternity. One is heaven, and the other is hell. Second concept is this. Heaven is real. It's a real place. Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples in John 14, says, Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place For you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus talked about heaven being a real place. Uh, When he was teaching the disciples how to pray, he said, This then is how you should pray Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Paul, when he wrote to the church at Philippi, said this Our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. In heaven, there will be this real conscious understanding of where we are and what's going on around us. We will know and be known. It'll be a place where we experience reward that comes from God, that out of his goodness, he bestows on us. James 1 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were were, uh, before you. Matthew 6, Jesus said, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up yourselves instead treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. 
Heaven is going to be a place where we receive from God his goodness in a way that we can't imagine. God's presence will be there with us in heaven. I wish we had time to read all of Revelation 4. You can take your Bibles out and and take a look at that. But in Revelation 4, everyone gathers in heaven around the throne of God. The angels are there. They're, They're singing to God and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We'll be in relationship with God in a way that we've never experienced yet. But it's the relationship that God designed for us from the beginning of time. Heaven's a a place, it's a place that we can only have access to through Jesus, but we'll talk more about that in a moment. Eternity is real. Heaven's real. And hell is real as well. You know, in our culture, we rarely talk about the reality of hell and the promised punishment that will come for people who don't give themselves completely to Jesus. We see, we see and hear a lot about hell, but it's mostly in, in the movies, in cinema, because they understand that, that there's that evil, um, there's an end to evil. We, as Christians, don't tend to talk about hell very much because it makes people uncomfortable. We don't talk about it because it scares people. We don't talk about it because we know that when we think about a holy God, that that is what we deserve. Maybe we don't talk about it because it's a real possibility for us. You know, in Scripture, when it talks about hell, there are lots of different words that are used. Um, Sheol is one of the words that's used often in the Old Testament as, as kind of a resting place for the dead. Uh, there's, there's a word that, that's used in the New Testament that's, uh, uh, that's just a, a very interesting word. It's the word Gehenna. It's often translated hell in, into the English. Gehenna was a transliteration of the, of the word that described the Valley of Hinnom that was a valley just outside of Jerusalem. It was a place that was a terrible, terrible place. And in the first century, people knew exactly where it was because historically it was a place where, where, the, where people had sacrificed their children to Moloch, to, to an idol. They had killed their kids there. And over time, that child sacrifice had stopped, but that place, that location, had become a dump for the city of Jerusalem. So all of the trash from the city of Jerusalem went into the valley of Hinnom. It was lit on fire, and it just burnt continually. I don't know if you've ever been around a dump um, that burns, but they burn nonstop. It just does not go out. And the Valley of Hinnom was, was this place of perpetual fire, along with all of the stuff that exists along with a dump. The maggots, the creepy crawly things, the smell, all of the vile things. It was all outside of the city, a distant place, but a place that all, uh, all of the Jews in Jerusalem knew and understand clearly. Scripture describes hell as a place of isolation and bitter sorrow. Jesus in Matthew 8 said, I say to you that many who are not Jews, many Gentiles will come from the east and the west, will sit down to feast at the table and enjoy God's promises with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven because they accepted me as their savior. But the sons and heirs of the kingdom, the, the Jewish descendants of Abraham, will not rec- who didn't recognize me as Messiah, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, which is farthest removed from the kingdom, there will be weeping and sorrow and pain and grinding or gnashing of teeth and distress and anger. 
Hell's described as this place of isolation and bitter sorrow. It's described as a place of eternal fire. Jesus said, uh, as he's telling a parable, then the king will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's described as a place of punishment and judgment. Second Thessalonians says, he will punish those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. Writer of Hebrews says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's not fun to talk about, is it? It's not fun to consider. And it begs this question, I think, for those of us who follow Jesus. Maybe people who are just interested. Why does hell exist? Why, why does a place like that have to exist in eternity? The answer is this, I think, to satisfy God's need for justice. It is to punish wrongdoing. It's to separate our sin from a holy God. Think for a second. How, how can hell exist with a perfect, loving God? The answer is this, I think. The highest good for God is not humanity. We are not the most important thing in God's nature. It is, we, we are secondary to his holiness. We were made for God, not God made for us. The, the best way I can kind of describe this is if, if a carpenter is, is, or a builder is building a house and he builds the house and he discovers, um, you know, halfway, three quarters of the way through the building of this house that some of the materials that he got were defective and that they're ultimately going to jeopardize the strength, the support of that particular house. What's that builder going to do? That builder is not just going to go ahead and continue to build that house, to build it to completion, and know that it looks good on the outside, but that it's rotting from the inside. The builder is going to say, no, my name's on that house, and I'm going to tear apart and find those bad materials. I'm going to get rid of those, replace them with good materials, so that the structure can accomplish what it was designed to do, so that it can be useful and beautiful and productive and, and, uh, and last. God made us to be in relationship with him, and when we choose to be out of relationship with him, our humanity becomes secondary to his holiness, and hell has to exist to take us out of his presence because of the holiness of God. We were made by God, for God. If we choose to reject the one who created us, it's not compassionate for God to allow us to continue in our broken state in his presence. Hell is what we all deserve. I was reading this week and, and, and read a guy that said, what do we have to do to choose hell? And his answer was Nothing. Hell is the natural result for all of us in our sinful state. 
It's the natural destination for us all without Jesus. The, the importance of this message comes down to, to this thought that I started with. How we see eternity determines how we see the world. It determines how we live our lives. Don't miss that. If eternity is real, that changes the way that we live. If heaven is real, if hell is real, every decision that we make is measured in light of that reality. On the other hand, if heaven is just a state of mind, if heaven is just this ethereal concept, this, this, uh, this, this idea, and hell is reserved only for the most violent, despicable people in history, and we can avoid it by being good or just a little bit better than those people who are around us, the, that concept of eternity means basically that we can live and do anything that we want, that we can live however we please as long as we're just a little bit better than the people who are around us. Don't miss this. Eternity is real. We've, we've, we've got to internalize the reality of heaven and hell and allow it to impact our lives here and now. We have to stop talking about a perfectly grilled steak or a gorgeous sunset or peace and quiet as heaven. When we do, it so dilutes the real thing as if to make it non-existent in our minds. Likewise, we've got to stop talking about business meetings or a divorce or boot camp or chemotherapy as hell, as bad as those things may be. As bad as they may be, they will be a walk in the park compared to eternity in hell. Deep down inside us, we want heaven to be real. Because no matter how good our lives are, we long for something that's better than this current life. We want peace and safety and comfort and love and beauty in a way that we can never experience it here in this broken world. We may taste it here or there, but we can never experience it continually. We know it's there somewhere, it's just not here. There has to be something better. And deep down, I think in our souls, we want hell to be real, too, because we want justice. We want Hitler to burn in hell. We want the guy who kept the, those girls locked in his house in Cleveland for years. We want him locked up forever. We long for justice for others, just not for us. We want a sliding scale for us. But that's not the way God works. So we don't really believe that hell is real, or sometimes maybe we just don't think that we deserve to go there. What we think or believe doesn't define what's real. Digest that for a moment. What we think or believe doesn't define what's real. What's real is real. And when we die, we will conform to the reality that is eternity. 
at the beginning of the message, I said, you know what, if, you're, if, you're, if you've got questions, if you're a skeptic, if you're not sure that you buy this whole thing, um, I want you to listen closely. It, it really is for this concept. Is there a reason to believe that Jesus knew what he was talking about more than Socrates, more than Kierkegaard, more than Oprah? Um, the answer to that question is yes. How do we know that? It's because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Jesus died and went into eternity and came back for us. Jesus, Scripture tells us, was alive from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time. Um, Jake and Chris both mentioned that Scripture in the last two weeks. Jesus, because he experienced eternity and came into our world, is able to talk definitively. He's able to talk authoritatively about eternity, and we need to listen to what he said. I finished this past week, I finished a book that I've been reading for about, I don't know, two months on Marco Polo. Um, I, I had never read anything about Marco Polo, and so I thought, I, I need to be exposed to this guy who was this great explorer from the, from the 1200s. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, Marco Polo left Venice when he was 16 years old, and he was gone on his travels through China and, and uh, Mongolia for the next 24 years. It was 24 years before he returned home. Um, when he came home and began to tell stories about what he experienced in China and in the Far East, Western Europeans didn't believe him. They said, hey, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, even, uh, actually, for, for the next century, Marco Polo's writings were just kind of shelved and they were dismissed as fairy tales. That no one could have experienced the things that he wrote about, about, his, um, about his travels. 700 years after Marco Polo died... Historians began to compile Marco Polo's um, uh, travels, the, his, his, uh, the stories that he had told, with Mongolian history and Chinese history that had been written separately, and began to find that, that um, the, the heart and soul of what Polo wrote about actually coincided with their history. It was real. Why was that? Because Polo had been there and come back to tell the story about it. Why is it that we can believe what the Bible says? Why is it that we can believe what Jesus says about eternity? It's because he went there and came back to us to tell us about it. Jesus had firsthand knowledge of eternity. What motivates you to be prepared for eternity? I hope at your core it's, it's a love for Jesus. It's, uh, that motivation sustains us. It drives us. But whenever we think about heaven and hell, and we think about hell, we think, I, I, as a kid, I remember thinking, you know what, is it, is it enough to love God because of a fear of hell? Is fear a good motivator? Fear of punishment, fear of pain, fear of separation. Um, is, is fear a legitimate motivator to drive us to action? I think the answer to that is yes. You know what, if I stand on the edge of a cliff, and I look down into the Grand Canyon, fear is going to make me not stand like this, right? Fear is a healthy motivator. Fear of getting a ticket or being involved in an accident keeps me from driving 20 or 30 miles an hour faster than the speed limit. Fear of getting sick makes me avoid certain foods at summer picnics that have been out in the sun for several hours. God designed us with a healthy sense of fear and pain so that that would drive us from certain kinds of behaviors. Satan is the one who says, oh yeah, look, 
The beautiful is so much better out here. Satan is the one who says, oh, no, you can drive. You're a better driver than all those other people. You can drive that fast. Satan is the one who says, that potato salad, that's good stuff. Can fear be a motivator, a healthy motivator in a healthy relationship? I think so. You know, when a woman says to a man, you know what, it's me and only me or none of me. The man has to think, you know what, I'm afraid of losing her. I'm going to change my behavior to be a one-woman man because I don't want to lose that person. Now, he may be motivated because he thinks, I, I want to spend all my time with you for the rest of my life without any other distractions. But I think that there's a healthy sense of fear that, that when, we, um, when we stray, that it's going to destroy everything. Fear is a healthy motivator in a healthy relationship. If fear is the only motivator in a relationship, it's not a healthy relationship. If it's the only motivator, heaven is real, and it will be incredible. Hell also is real, and it will be horrific. There's a reason that we have this expression that says, that will scare the hell out of you. Hell should scare us. Listen to Revelation 21 for those two motivators that are side by side. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and, they, and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. The voice of Jesus who had been there and come back. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. The way that we see eternity determines how we see the world. It determines how we live our lives. Man, we've got to count the cost for the way that we live our lives. The Great Awakening is a time period that describes a, a time of spiritual revival that took place in the 1730s and 1740s in Great Britain and in the, in the American colonies. Jonathan Edwards preached what's probably the most famous sermon of that time entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Edwards preached a 10-point message on the horrors of hell and the fate that awaited everyone separated from God by their sin. 
His desire was to paint such a vivid picture of hell that people would be drawn to the cross of Jesus. In the the midst of that message, Edwards used an illustration to, to describe the state of man as walking on ice and struggling to stay standing. He said the ice was on an incline that led to this bottomless pit and that people, as they walked on the ice and fell down, kept sliding and sliding down into the pit where they couldn't be rescued. Only the hand of Jesus could reach down and steady a person and take them off the ice and away from the pit. Only Jesus could overcome the weight of their bodies, the weight of their sin. When I read that, I thought about a football game that I went to in the 1970s in Cincinnati at Riverfront Coliseum. I remember going with my dad and and watching the Bengals play. I couldn't tell you anything about the game because the picture that I remember in my mind is what happened after the game. During the game, it was probably in the upper 20s and low 30s, and it kind of rained and drizzled the entire game. It was a messy, messy game. When we left at the end of the game and began to walk out on Riverfront Stadium, at the top, there was a, a very level area at the top of the stadium where people walked to get to the escalators. And by the end of the game, there was somewhere uh, probably about a quarter, maybe a half an inch of ice that covered that whole flat surface area. And people, as they walked, struggled to keep their balance moment by moment, um, time by time. Everybody had, had, just had to walk very carefully because of the ice that was there. I remember very vividly as a 15, 16-year-old kid the number of people who had had way too many alcoholic beverages walking on that ice. Because as they walked, they'd walk and fall, and you would hear their head thud. You would hear their arms hit the cement, the ice that was there. And then start laughing and get up, and then take another two steps and fall again, over and over and over again. They were oblivious to the pain that they would feel the next day when they got home and got out of the cold. My, my fear is that that is the picture of our lives that we walk through life with no clear sense of direction. We self-medicate and we laugh off the pain, thinking that both are normal, not realizing that we are one breath away from a frightening eternity, separated from everything good and kind and beautiful, isolated in a blackness that's far worse than what was experienced by that soccer team in Thailand. 2 Corinthians 5 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So the question for us all today is this. Are you ready? Are you ready to die? Are you ready to face eternity? Hebrews 9 says, Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Our status, our place in eternity is determined by one thing, how we respond to the cross of Jesus. Whether or not we accept Jesus' death in our place, whether or not we cling to him and embrace on his holiness rather than our own. 
The question is, are you ready to take Jesus' extended hand to allow his death to cover your sins, to make your life new? Are you ready to place your life fully in his, to allow his desires to become your desires, his words to become your marching orders, his heart to become your heart? If that's what you want, let me just say that needs to impact every aspect of your life. That's a decision that needs to be public. You need people to know that you've made that decision so that they can come alongside you and walk with you as you live with Jesus in control. But you've got to make a decision. That decision is, is, can only happen because Jesus has done all the work. We can't do anything to earn eternity. You're not good enough. You can't do enough good to be worthy. You're not smart enough to talk your way into heaven because you'll be talking to the one who made your brain, the one who gave you the ability to speak. To think that you could outsmart God or charm your way into heaven is not just stupid, it's laughable. It's only through Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He became the perfect sacrifice. He took your sin on himself. He's the only one who can introduce you to his Father. Let's pray. Let me just say this while your eyes are closed. If God's working and you want to publicly today say, I choose Jesus, let me invite you to give, um, to give some power to that decision. And let me just invite you to just stand up right now. To just stand and say, I choose Jesus. I want him. I want heaven. I don't want to be separated from God. If that's your desire, at any time in the next couple of minutes, just stand and express that. Let's pray. God, Satan has done a masterful job at making us blind to the reality of eternity. Lord, let your word get inside us. Let it take root and let us live with the reality of eternity at the core of who we are, of what we do, of how we see the world. God, let the reality of heaven drive the choices that we make. God, let the reality of hell serve as warnings, as cautionary tales. God, as as things that would drive us to you, into your arms, knowing that you are the good, good father that loves us. Father, we want to know you. We want to love you. We want you to have complete control of our lives. We thank you, Father. We thank you that that's a a real possibility, that's a reality because of Jesus, because he took our sins on himself, because he went to the cross, only because of him, Father.
Help us daily to give up our will to you, to him. In his name we pray, amen.